0: This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio
1: 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's
2: largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM.
3: When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong.
2: Thank you very much, Roger. Good morning to you. Good morning, world, as we come your way on the technology of the century that allows people to hear us all over the world. And we do hear from some of them occasionally in other parts of the planet. And that's always fun to compare notes with what's happening where they are and what's happening where you are and where we are and we're heading into a very busy time because today with that kind of a weather forecast Air Orion will be flying. We'll be flying down to Champaign, then driving to Rantoul for the Half Century of Progress show. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. And then, of course, next week, it's the granddaddy of the outdoor farm shows, the Farm Progress show, Decatur, Illinois. That will be next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Oh, and you're still asking when the sandwich fair gets underway? It's always the Wednesday after Labor Day. And yes, Max and I will be there on different days to uh, entertain folks, including you, I hope, at the sandwich fair. So anyway, we're going to check in this morning uh, to talk markets with Rich Feltes of R.J. O'Brien. We're going to uh, check in with uh, Jim Fazell to talk gardening and some of the solutions to problems you may be having in your garden or lawn this year. And then we're going to check in with Steve Alexander, who will talk about Hollywood coming to the Farm Progress Show. There's going to be a film debut At the Farm Progress Show this year. So, a lot to happen here between now and 6 o'clock. We'll check in with Jim Fazell when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. We say good morning to Jim Fazell here on the Saturday Morning Show. And let me lead off, Jim, with a couple of listener questions, if I can. A lady lady uh, at church said. I have nice red tomatoes, but I pick them off, and on the bottom of the tomato, there's a black spot. Uh-huh. What can I do to stop that?
3: Well, I'll tell you, that's called blossom and rot. And it's not a disease. It's a physiological condition. Technically, there's a lack of calcium in the tissues, so the tissues never develop properly and they just fall out. Uh, Actually, you can cut that piece of the tomato off and the rest of the tomato should be just fine. Now, what happens when the plant is developing the first um, set of fruit, those fruits develop so quickly that a lot of times they don't have enough calcium in them. Not much you can do about it except to wait. Till the plant begins to slow down a little bit, and eventually it will straighten itself out and the tomatoes will be fine. Uh, if you have this problem year after year, you might consider when the plant begins to set fruit, first thing in the year, just spray them with calcium or put some calcium on the ground to, to help uh, increase. Actually, there's enough calcium in the soil, it's just that the plant pick, can't pick it up, Um there in along with this black thing there are a lot of people that are talking about the the black stems on tomato plants that has to do with the amount of water that we had early in the spring the stems rot off and about the time you think you're going to get some tomatoes the plant or that part of the plant wilts and you're out of out of uh, tomatoes for that plant now late blight early blight uh alternaria those are three diseases that cause that the the solution is to use varieties that are resistant to those diseases and those you can buy either as seed or as plants but you need to use resistant varieties then give them plenty of room to grow that helps with the blossom end rot as well give the plants plenty of room to
2: grow question number two from our crop reporter in central illinois he said ask jim why the maple trees in central illinois are losing leaves even if the leaves are still green
3: still green. Well, there are a couple things. If you look closely, uh, there may be spots on those leaves. There's a disease called maple tar spot, so you have little specks on the leaf that turn black at this time of year. Uh, There's also anthracnose, but you'd normally see that because that's dead edges of the leaf. Um, There's a, a... situation called summer leaf drop which will occur if the plants grow very vigorously in the spring as they did this year they may develop a bigger crown and more leaves than what they can sustain when things become a little more stressful and they'll just shed, shed leaves but there's another thing that's happening right now and we see this all over our area it's called the maple petiole borer. Now, if the leaves come off with only half the petiole on them, look very closely at that petiole, and you'll probably find that it's a little bit hollow right where it broke off from the, from the rest of the leaf. If that's the case, you have the petiole borer. That's the larva of a little tiny microscopic almost wasp. You'll never see the wasp, you're never going to see the boar, and it really doesn't hurt anything. It's not going to take very many leaves off the tree, even though if you look at the ground, you say, my gosh, it's fall here already, but the leaves are green. Not really a serious problem. It does happen, and uh, you may never see it again. Once in a while it'll happen, and then for some peculiar reason, the insects that cause that just disappear. You never see them.
2: That's That's Mother Nature, I guess.
3: That's Mother Nature, and as long as you have plenty of leaves on the tree, there's nothing to worry about.
2: Well, I know you've got questions every week and every day, so you've got mine answered. Now, what about some of yours?
3: Well, we have a question from some people, in fact, several people who have arrowwood viburnums. And uh, they're saying, well, you know, arrowwood viburnums, we've had them for a while, but all of a sudden they begin to stink. I hate to say that word, but you know, that's absolutely true. These particular viburnums, if they're affected by primarily insects, they begin to put out this tremendous smell, which smells awful. It smells like a garbage dump. And it's a, it's a direct result of the plants trying to wall, wall, off, wall off these invaders. Uh, there are two kinds that can cause this. One is the, the borer that affects those plants right at the stem line, at the soil line. Or what we have now are these leaf beetles. Viburnum leaf beetle puts little holes in the leaves all over the tree. It looks like it was shot by shotgun. all over the bush, Uh, this time of year there's not an awful lot that you can do because the damage has already been done. And quite frankly, it's become such a problem that we're telling people don't plant arrowwood viburnum. In fact, if you're having the difficulty, try to replace them because it's really a serious situation. But if we can keep the plants, keep an area clear of those plants for three or four years, these bugs will disappear and you won't have the problem again. Otherwise, the thing that you could try would be to spray the foliage with seven insecticide, but it's a little late to do that because the damage has already been done. Anyway, Arrowwood viburnum, it's a wonderful plant, but does have this particular habit. Some of the other viburnums will do that as well. Not very nice, but it's, again, a part of nature where these plants are trying to protect themselves. Now, the next thing that we're getting questions about is the sod webworms. People are saying, I'm not cutting the grass, and I've got flocks of these little moths flying at knee-high all over the lawn, right in front of the lawnmower. Well, those are the adults of the sod webworm. We've talked about these before. These insects are laying eggs right now, which will hatch into little larvae that will eat the grass off in about two weeks. So if you wait another week and then treat the entire lawn with seven insecticide again, uh, this will kill these larvae off as they're beginning to hatch from the eggs and you will rescue your grass for the rest of the season. Of course, grubs are a problem right now, too, and we're beginning to see a little bit of the grub problem show up. Uh, Grubs... uh, you can't use the the long-term things like Merit at this time of year because the grubs will do too much damage before it becomes activated. So you'll want to use something like Dilox or, again, 7-insecticide. Now, if you use 7 on the grubs, you want to soak it in with about an inch of water because the grubs are not at the surface as the sod webworms are. So if you're going to use 7 or Dilox, either one, as soon as you put the material down, go ahead and soak the lawn, lawn with about an inch of water, or wait for nature to do it if it's going to do it within a day or so. But if you don't, if you don't get the ground soaked within a day or so, you've wasted your your efforts of trying to eliminate the problem. Now, another question about lawns: Why is there so much crabgrass and so many broadleaf weeds showing up now? Well, this is two two reasons. If the Material that you put down to prevent crabgrass, these are the crabgrass preventers like halts and so forth, that you put down early in the season, were put down too early with all that moisture that we had, they're gone. And you're not going to have any protection anymore. This is called breakthrough. Now, breakthrough occurs when you have a uh, lack of the preventative insect. Uh, um, herbicide and you have good growing conditions for the weeds but not good growing conditions for the turf grass. Now we had a situation where it was too dry, the turf grass wasn't growing, uh, it was too hot so the crabgrass and some of these broad weeds got a chance to get started. And when they do that, they're going to grow vigorously, which they're doing right now. Crabgrass, I wouldn't do anything about it. Make sure that you get the crabgrass preventer down next spring. And with your broad weeds, you actually can still do something with some of the broad herbicides, the broad-spectrum herbicides. Spray those things, uh, particularly if they have not made seed as yet. And you'll get them out of the way before they can make seed. So you should have less problem next year. Now, one last thing I want to talk about is the grass is in the ground covers. A lot of folks are having trouble with their ground cover plantings like the the vinca and so forth, or in their flower and shrub borders with a lot of grass growing in. What can you do about it? Well, first of all, the best thing to do with it is pull it. But there is a herbicide. It's called fluazifop or fusilade strange name but it can be sprayed over the top of any of your broadleaf plants it will kill only the grass now you need to keep it off your lawn because it'll kill lawn grasses as well but out in your shrub beds or your your ground cover or flower beds uh, you can spray this material carefully on the grass itself not worrying about getting it on any of the broadleaf plants because it will kill the grass without killing any of the broadleaf plants plants and it works very nicely really amazing material It works just the reverse of the stuff that you put on the lawns to get rid of broadleaf plants well you've answered
2: a lot of questions this morning sir
3: yes a lot of questions and uh, we keep getting them at this time of year actually next week our trees are in trouble we're going to talk about that next week cover that pretty thoroughly so that some of the folks that are having those problems will know what's caused what's causing it and what to
2: do about it all right as always we thank you for your expertise that's our visit this week with jim fazell our specialist in ornamental horticulture here on the saturday morning show 23 minutes after five o'clock the beginning of a beautiful saturday across much of the midwest and earlier i talked about a movie debut at the farm progress show next week So let's get that story as we say good morning to Steve Alexander.
1: Joining me on the telephone is Sam Goldberg. He is a producer of a new feature film called Silo. And uh, this is, uh, Sam, very interesting in that I believe this is the first time a film has debuted at the Farm Progress show, is it not?
0: Yeah, that's what they're telling me pretty excited about it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Let's talk about Silo. It's a film about grain entrapment and uh, we in Farming America know all too well about these accidents, incidents. And how did you get started on making this film?
0: Yeah, uh, well, thanks for having me and, you know, giving me a platform to talk about this movie. It's, it's, uh, it's been five plus years in the making. I was approached by a director named Marshall Burnett. He was living in Nashville, Tennessee, producing and directing a different film and he was driving home one night and heard an NPR story about a grain entrapment incident in Mount Carroll, Illinois, where three teenage boys went into a grain bin and two of them sadly passed away and were engulfed in the grain. And the third boy was rescued after a very long and complex rescue. He thought it'd be a really interesting idea for a film. And so we, we sought out to make a movie five years ago. And as it often goes in our industry, it took a little while, but Last summer, we, we filmed it in Kentucky and in Iowa, and we are, as as you mentioned, launching it and releasing it at the Farm Progress Show, and you know, quite excited about it. And hopefully, to be the first film to ever do that.
1: Can you walk us through the plot?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The plot of the film uh, takes place over the course of twenty four hours in a small town, and it follows a few different stories. It's an ensemble movie, you know, like the film Crash or Traffic or. Magnolia, some successful movies that really follow a few characters whose lives intersect over any you know one subject. And our movie follows an 18 year old boy and his mom, as well as a farmer and his dad, uh, and a local volunteer fire chief. And uh, you know, sometime into the movie, uh, an incident happens. The boy gets trapped, and the rest of the film follows a pretty thrilling rescue operation to try and get him out. And it's, it's definitely a drama you know, it's a serious movie about people who are having a very tough time in their lives trying to make their way through a day that seems impossible um, and their lives intersect in such a way that they're forced to forgive one another, deal with issues that have kind of long passed but never fully been dealt with and uh, all the while you know, try and get this boy out of a really, really challenging circumstance.
1: Does your film incorporate any of the uh, newer life-saving techniques that are being used by fire departments?
0: It does. It does. There's a grain tube that's very prevalent and important in our film. There's a a grain tube plot line, basically, where, you know, what what happens often in small towns, you know, what we learned through our research is a lot of small-town volunteer fire departments may not have a grain tube, or even if they do, they may not have the proper training with the grain tube, so they often have to wait for a big city fire department to show up with the proper training and equipment. And that's exactly what happens in our movie. There's, there's a waiting game and the local firefighters have to keep this boy alive however they can without actually touching the grain because it's, it's so dangerous. It's like an avalanche that could cascade on him. And so that is, that's exactly right. There, there's a big sort of element of the new training techniques and technology that hopefully, you know, will save the boy's life. And, um, yeah, in the process of making this movie, I'm, I'm proud to say that we've worked with some companies that have then donated grain tubes to local fire departments. And, uh, a big part of our initiative is both getting people to think twice about getting into their bins without the proper safety precautions in the first place, but then also making sure that as much as we can, uh, we can assist, you know, fire departments in, the acquisition of grain tubes and training with the grain tubes because it is really complex. You know how do you how do you get somebody out of that? It's just so complex, and that's why these are such difficult scenarios. And our movie, you know, puts somebody in that situation and you know hopefully keeps people entertained and interested in, in what happens.
1: Tell me about how people can see this at the Farm Progress Show and uh, and beyond.
0: Yes, yeah, so we will be at Lot Two One Seven Four. Uh, at the farm progress show, we're actually right next to Syngenta square, which I believe is a beer garden. Uh, we'll have a large tent inside of that tent. We'll have a projector and every half an hour from 8am to 5pm we'll be showing our trailer of the film and we'll be releasing it online at the same time. So people can come and every half hour, have a little popcorn, uh, sit down, watch the trailer and then we'll also be sharing our tent with the Grain Handling Safety Coalition, which is a fantastic organization that teaches people farm safety, in particular grain-related safety. And they'll be there doing a variety of uh, you know, safety demonstrations, both inside and outside of our tent. And then throughout the day, I think it's 11.15 a.m., 12.45 p.m. and 2.15 p.m. Tuesday through Thursday, we'll be doing panel discussions with farm safety experts with some mental health experts talking about generational farming and the stresses of modern-day farming. And then the three star actors of our film, Jim Parrick, Jeremy Holm, and Jack DeFalco, will also be in attendance in panel discussions and taking pictures and talking about their experience with the film and all the research they did. And then additionally, uh, we're on uh, Facebook at Silo the Film, and our website is SiloTheFilm.com. And we're encouraging people to sign up to host a screening in their, in their local areas. You know, we're, we're doing a unique way of distributing this film. We're trying to empower people to get together and have a public way to screen this movie and then use our discussion guide, which we've created with the Grain Handling Safety Coalition, to talk more about the film and farm safety. Uh, so we're calling that the, the Silo Community Screening Campaign. And if you go to our website, silothefilm.com, you'll be able to host a screening or learn where you can see the movie upcoming.
1: Sam Goldberg, the producer of a film called Silo, which debuts at the Farm Progress show next week.
2: Thank you, Roger, and thank you for that good forecast. It sounds like good flying weather today, and uh, that can be a challenge this time of the year with thunderstorms popping up, but... Sounds like a good day for flying Air Orion down to Frasca Field on the north side of Champaign. And then we'll drive to uh, Rantoul and uh, stop in at the... uh half century of progress show max is already there and i'll be talking about some of the activity that we'll have for you today if you're coming to the half century of progress show but right now welcome to samuelson says i'm orion this morning with this question cow milking is sexual abuse Just about any area of food production, whether it be plant-based or animal-based, at one time or another comes under attack from somebody. And that's why this week's headline on Samuelson Says is the most unusual one I think I have ever used. But it comes from the New York University's Women's and Gender Studies Program, at Brockport State University in New York State, and the paper insists that milking cows is comparable to sexual abuse, emotional trauma related to pregnancy, and non-consensual hormone and use. The author then writes, Throughout our lives, we are offered an idealized image of dairy cows, where these animals raise on beautiful pastures, have room to play, and are comforted in spacious areas in which to sleep. We are presented with images of a life well lived. But when it comes to the deaths of those same animals, the picture-perfect story comes to grim reality. The paper then continues, The outdated stereotype about women being caretakers, and most importantly child bearers, remains consistent in the dairy industry, especially when we take into account the means through which these animals are exploited. A few brief examples include rape or sexual assault non-consensual hormone treatments, and emotional trauma related to pregnancy. Dairy cows are forcibly impregnated, mainly by artificial insemination or raped, in order to constantly produce milk for humans to consume. The paper goes on to say a lot more, but I think that's enough that I'll share with you because, number one, it points out that the people who wrote the paper have no idea that if you don't milk cows, they're going to become ill and could eventually perish. Cows have to be milked two or three times a day to stay in good health. But the people who wrote the paper apparently haven't been on a dairy farm or around dairy animals to know that milking is an important part of a dairy cow's health. Will it ever end? That's Samuelson Says, a presentation of Tribune Radio Networks. 19 minutes before 6 o'clock here on this Saturday morning in... We never know where guests on this show will be spending time while we're doing the broadcast. That's the case with our next guest, Rich Feltis, R.J. O'Brien, who joins us from, well, you'll find out, to talk markets when we continue on the Saturday Morning Show. Well, to talk markets here on the Saturday Morning Show, as we do every week, we're going by long-distance phone to Colorado. That's where we find Rich Feltes of RJ O'Brien, who we occasionally visit with here on the Saturday Morning Show. Good morning to you, Rich, and what takes you to Colorado? Well, uh, yearly RJ O'Brien uh,
4: brings out all, all of their uh, clients for a meeting. Our uh, introducing broker clients, primarily, we're the lar- largest. IB FCM in the world. And we have over 300 gathering here just out of, outside of Denver in Aurora, Colorado, in the new Gaylord Resort that's just opened. And we're going to be talking uh, markets and trade ideas and, of course, uh, the importance of compliance and staying straight with the CFTC uh, all over the next uh, day and a half. And we've got a great uh, list of speakers, uh, and that has drawn in a good crowd this
2: year what will you be well i shouldn't ask this because i think i know but what uh, topic will you be covering at this gathering well i'll be i'll be
4: uh chairing or moderating a grain panel and we're going to be uh going over the uh we got two distinguished speakers that are on the panel i'll be making some comments myself uh regarding the latest on the trade update and uh we hopefully are going to be providing some uh directional guidance and i think from a little bit firmer foundation orient typically our company has this meeting in march or april and since we're having this now at the end of august uh, we know more than we typically do in the late winter early spring we know u.s crops are nearing maturity we know we've got big small grain crops across europe and the former soviet union Uh, we know that uh, you know our markets are uh, are globally economically uh slowing down and we also know especially after the news this morning that any imminent breakthrough with china trade uh seems very unlikely so i think that's going to give us a little bit better foundation to make some price forecasts going forward
2: and of course we just finished one of the annual summer uh, tours are we ever going to get real numbers on what we're seeing uh, with the weather delays we've had this year
4: Well, uh, two comments on that, and that's a very good question, Orion, Uh, with regards to the pro-farmer tour. uh, As I look at all the numbers, and what I look at, Orion, is the percentage decline in the pro-farmer corn yield versus last year, and I compare that against the percentage decline that USDA gave us in their corn yields on the August crop report. And surprisingly, uh, uh, USDA is uh, uh, right in the ballpark. Pro-farmer numbers are in effect confirming the USDA corn yield number. Now, soybeans, it's an entirely different story. Uh, The pod counts are well down. We know that the the beans are still potting. Uh, A lot is going to depend on the length of the growing season and the first frost date. But our pod count, for example, in the state of Illinois is just a little bit better than it was in 2012. And in 2012, uh, Orion, we had a final uh, soybean yield in the state of Illinois of 43 bushels, an acre. USDA at the August crop report gave us a soybean yield for Illinois of 55 bushels per acre. So if there is any surprise, it's going, I think, be in the soybean sector. But in answer to your question, I I think the September crop report coming up is just a a modest exercise in replicating what they said in August. The real important number will be in October. There, USDA will have harvested a number of their sample plots process them and weigh them through their labs and that will be a big part of the yield forecast that we get in October. That's really going to be the first, I think, reliable crop report of the season because of this very unusual growing season that we've been living through.
2: I think probably one of the most contentious points uh, coming out of the USDA reports is that corn yield per acre. What's your current feeling on that? Well, uh, I my view is
4: that the corn yield will be coming down perhaps uh, three to four, maybe even five bushels an acre from USDA's 169. However, uh, that is not enough of a yield cut to really change the overall narrative of adequate uh, supplies. And we are at the time of the, uh, in the calendar year as we're transitioning from supply focused to demand focused when the uh, demand news becomes more important. New crop Corn sales Orion are tracking 7 million tons out of U.S. below what they were a year ago. Uh, We know that uh, even though Gulf corn values have have eroded and Argentine corn premiums have advanced, Argentine corn is still the cheapest corn in the world. We had another export sales report yesterday, which was quite frankly uh, disappointing on our weekly corn export sales. So uh, uh, even though this corn crop may be shrinking, there's a fear that the demand is also shrinking. It's just not going to be enough until we get verification in October that perhaps there is a big surprise or there's a very early freeze that uh, uh, takes a lot of test weight out of the corn and hence yield and production. Uh, But save those events, uh, this transitioning of, of focus to demand, I think, is going to be a you know, what we start running on uh, in terms of uh, market primary factor focus uh, after the October crop report.
2: One of the areas that uh, Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, is being challenged uh, by farmers is the uh, markets that we have lost because of the trade war. And a lot of farmers are saying we'll not get them back. What do you feel on that?
4: well i I think there is some t- truth to that, maybe even more than some. Uh, the secretary has also said that over the last decade the u s soybean farmer has probably become too reliant on the Chinese market. Uh, there was an excellent story by the Reuters folks earlier this week about uh, the uh, North Dakota soybean farmer uh, now one of you know in the top five soybean producing states and uh, the fact that they don't have the uh, crushing infrastructure up there as a backstop to take the beans Uh, vis-a-vis their primary outlook via shuttle trains up to the pnw to load in vessels to go to china that has virtually dried up uh, and impacted those upper grade plains producers more than your central midwest producers Uh, china right now or in uh, last week stated publicly that they can uh, 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 bridge the gap in their soybean needs uh, through the fourth quarter of 2019. Uh, we know their crush rate is down. We know their hog numbers are way down. And uh, we know they're committed to uh, diversifying as much as possible away from the U.S. in terms of sourcing uh, soybeans. It looks to us, and again, this comes indirectly directly through uh, my contacts at the Commodity Markets Council in Washington, that it's unlikely that this trade, Uh, Fracas is going to be resolved prior to the 2020 election. I think it's well known in Washington and Beijing that the uh, Chinese would prefer a Trump loss, that they would have an easier trade negotiating partner with a Democratic president. And it appears now that we're in a waiting game on the part of the Chinese to to wait out this president and hope uh, he doesn't survive another four years. So in your basic question, I, I think it's correct. At least through the fall elections next year, there doesn't look to be much hope of gaining back uh, much of this very important uh, Chinese soybean demand market that has really been a boom to U.S. soybean production.
2: And finally, the Chinese government said they weren't buying any more ag products from the United States. But yet, this past week, we reported a couple of export sales. Are they changing their mind, or was that done before they made the announcement?
4: Well, it's not, I know what you're exactly what you're referring to, and it's not entirely clear whether that uh, that purchase uh, was a new purchase or simply uh, rolling that purchase uh, from an undecided into a you know a known. Origin, Um, you know, the Chinese are very adept at those kind of games. They're well aware of how our markets work and how to uh, uh, play our markets to their advantage in terms of their hedging strategies. Um, uh, After the events this morning, though, with these additional tariffs that have been announced. Uh, with the soon after the opening here in Chicago on Friday. Uh, it, the odds of the, any additional purchases here in the near term to appear to be very scant, unless there's some sort of a breakthrough on the trade talks and we resume at least a goodwill resumption of U.S. soybean purchases at a modest scale. At this point, that's, I think, the most we can hope for.
2: As always, we thank you, and particularly this morning, for taking time away from that conference in Colorado, and uh, we'll stay in touch with you as we get more reports. Our visit with Rich Feltis, R.J. O'Brien in Chicago, here on the Saturday Morning Show. USDA released the August cattle on feed report yesterday, and here are the numbers. Cattle and calves on feed in the United States... 11,100,000 head as of August 1st. That inventory was slightly above August 1st of 2018, and it is the highest August 1st inventory since the series began in 1996. Placements in feedlots during July totaled 1,710,000 head, 2% below 2018 and marketings of fed cattle during july totaled two million head seven percent above 2018 those are the numbers the market will be trading when we resume trading on monday now as i said a busy time in the farm department here at WGN, because Max and I will be on the road. Max is in Rantoul, Illinois, and uh, we'll be there through tomorrow for the uh, Half Century of Progress show. I'll be flying down later today to join Max on stage at 3 o'clock this afternoon with our band, The Back Page, and we'll spend an hour with you in the entertainment tent, and we hope you'll stop by and say... Hello. And then, of course, next week it's the Farm Progress Show, Decatur, Illinois, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Max will be appearing at several of the exhibits on those three days, and I'll be at the University of Illinois exhibit every day at 10 o'clock in the morning. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And uh, 600 exhibitors at the Farm Progress Show this week, so there will be more than enough to uh, spend a day or two trying to see everything that's new. And one of the things Matt Youngman has talked about, and Max has also talked about, is the uh, surprising number in light of the farm situation financially, a surprising number of new tractors being introduced at the farm progress show this year and so uh, we'll look forward to seeing you there and as you heard earlier there will be the debut of a hollywood film all three days at the farm progress show and that of course is located at decatur Illinois. Every other year, we're at Decatur, and every other year, we're at Boone, Iowa, so that's where we'll be next year, but this year, it is Decatur. Stop by and say hello. As we ended the trading week yesterday, uh, these are the numbers. Livestock futures, the December lean hog contract down $2.60 a hundredweight and uh, the market will start at 5877 on Monday. October live cattle down $1.52. They'll start at $99.40 Monday and October feeder cattle down $3.05. That means they'll start Monday at $132.52 a hundredweight. Grain trade, the December wheat contract up five and a quarter cents yesterday. December corn, though, dropped four cents in the Friday trade. November soybeans took the big hit yesterday, down 13 and three-quarter cents a bushel. So that's our wrap for this week on the Saturday Morning Show. We'll see you later today at the Half Century of Progress show in Decatur, Illinois. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Bob Ferguson for doing the engineering work. And we'll look forward to being with you again next Saturday morning.
0: Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.